when I started reading and researching about the stock market, I realized it actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with numbers. I kind of grew up in a business background, so I always knew that I could do business. But in college, you know, or in school, high school, the way their mathematics is taught is like, you know, trigonometry, all these different things that seem so complicated, but none of them are required in the stock market. Author, millennial trader, and entrepreneur Anmol Singh stresses the power of consistent investing, no matter how small the amount. He shares his journey from struggling student to successful young entrepreneur, overcoming self-doubt and adversity through simple principles of trading psychology, personal growth mindset, collaboration, and consistent effort. He shares that even setting aside 10 or 20 bucks each month invested automatically over the course of years can compound into significant savings for your future. I'm Bob Wheeler, and this is Money You Should Ask. This podcast, our books, online courses, and newsletter all focus on awakening your money mindset. Our mission is to normalize conversations around personal finance so we can better understand why we do what we do when it comes to money. Ensure you never miss an episode. Click that follow button on your favorite podcast platform. Now, let's turn pennies into prosperity with our guest, Anmol Singh. Anmol, I'm so excited to have you on the show today because you've had a lot of success at a very young age. You've got expertise in trading and investing. Can you share just a little bit about that journey and what inspired you to go down this route? Yeah, definitely. First of all, looking forward to chatting with you. And my journey started when I left India to go to study business in London at Brunel University. So finance was not something that I ever dreamt about getting into being a person who was horrible at math growing up. Everybody said, oh, you're not going to have anything to do with numbers when you grow up. That's always what I thought. And I really believed that until I got to college. And then when one of my friends mentioned Jim Cramer or something about the stock market, and I was like, you know what? I always wondered why the stocks just move up and down, what causes the price movement. And I think every guy at some level is fascinated with the stock market. So that's where my fascination started. And me and my buddies in college were looking around in our first year to join a few societies. Should we join a football society? Should we join a cricket society? Should we join entrepreneurship society? We realized that there's no such thing as a trading or investment society. So we said, hey, why don't we just create this? None of us know anything, but we'll just get along. A bunch of guys we'll meet once a week. We'll just talk about a book we read. We'll talk about the stock market or what we read. So that's where my journey started. We used to meet once a week for you know every time talking about the markets and investing, that's what piqued my initial interest. And the great part that I like is we started that society in college and 10, 15 years later now, it still exists. It's thriving. It's a run-in society in that permanent part of the college now. Oh, that's awesome. And let me ask you this. So you had this mindset, I'm never going to have anything to do with money. You get involved in this group. And then when did you realize this is possible? I am allowed to work with numbers. Like, do you remember when that sort of started to shift? Yeah, I think very early on, too, because when I started reading and researching about the stock market, I realized it actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with numbers, right? <laughs> it's more about business. And I came from a business background. My father ran an export business with machineries. So I kind of grew up in a business background. So I always knew that I could do business. But in college or in school, high school, you're, the way their mathematics is taught is like trigonometry, all these different things that seem so complicated. But none of them are required in the stock market. All you need to know how good the company is. And if you're a technical trader like I am, all we need to do is memorize patterns. So when we started researching that, I'm like, wow, we don't need a lot of math for this. And for the stuff that we do need math, we have spreadsheets. So I think I can do this. 
That's awesome. What's great there is for people out there that have an assumption, like your assumption was you needed to use math, find out the facts before you walk away from things that interest you because you may actually have the tools you need to do the job, right? And sometimes we just take ourselves out before we even actually get the information. So I love that you said, well, I'm still curious about this, even though it's probably not for me, and then realized, oh, I can do this. What was it like growing up? Like, do you have a personal experience that you remember with your parents talking around money or you were like, I've got to do better or I'm expected to do better? Like, what was sort of the mindset around money for you growing up? Yeah, so I think growing up, obviously my father, he was the man of the household, right? He's the one who taken care of the whole family, going out there working. My mom took care of us children. And while he was out traveling and doing what he needed to do, to make the money. So grew up, I saw that. And I also saw that with money, you're kind of controlling the circumstances for everybody else, pretty much, as well as you see that there's an element of not only money control, but taking care of other people. But I realized that that's how you get respect. And for me, that's like a pattern I linked together very early on growing up that, okay, money equals respect. And then that's how I'm going to get my thing in in life. Because growing up, I never felt enough. I never felt like I was going to be that person. I was not the most popular kid in high school. So that was my way out. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get good at this one thing, put all my energy into this, get good at it. And that's how I'm going to earn my spot in this world. I love it. And for those out there that weren't the most popular kid in school, there's still hope. (laughs) (laughs) Most of us weren't the most popular kid in school. And the reality is we get into adulthood, we get to start making choices that aren't based on how people will see us. I mean, maybe it is in a different way, but it's not as much of a bubble when you're in school. Going into trading, how did you deal with the ups and downs, the highs and lows? I mean, early on, I would imagine there was some kind of stress level if you made a buy and then it went a little bit lower. Yeah, I think there's always going to be that element in trading and investing, no matter how successful you are, no matter how long you've been doing it. There's always that element. It's a constant battle. But I wouldn't even say battle. It's more so conditioning. You got to condition yourself to be okay with that in the realm of probabilities. So when you're a newer trader, psychology really affects you because you really don't have a plan. You're buying a stock, you hope it goes up, but you don't really have a well-defined plan. So what we're doing as traders is we track and backtest all of our trading for the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. We have spreadsheets and models of every little thing. So we know as per this model, okay, 40% of your trades are not going to work, right? 60% of them are going to work. So all we got to do is just keep doing the model and emotionally detach ourselves from that one particular trade. And that's the only way to really get good at it is statistical probability, just like a casino, right? You go to a casino, casino doesn't mind if you win a big hand at blackjack or roulette. They know that in the big scheme of things, it's part of the whole statistical probability. So in trading, it's the same thing. We just have to get the odds in our favor, trade with an edge and just keep on doing what our head says. But as a newer trader, you don't have an edge. You're just pushing the button and you hope that makes you a trader, but there's a lot more that goes behind the scenes. How do you regulate that and detach emotionally? Because a lot of my clients, oh my God, it's dropping, it's dropping, sell. And I'm like, no, 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 don't look. I'll tell a lot of my clients, put the money in, especially if they're doing it long-term. You know, you're buying in a mutual fund or whatever, a Disney stock. Buy it, set it, forget it, don't look. Don't go in every day if you're in it for the long run because you're just gonna get emotionally stressed out. How do you start to detach? Is there a trick? Yeah, there's one exercise that I give all my people. It's called the G-U-A-L technique. So it's get up and leave. So once you've taken that (laughs) trade, stop watching the screen and we're looking at the one minute chart going up and down. You're going to drive yourself crazy. If you look at the tick chart, you're going to develop a tick. 
So like stop looking at the screen all the time. You have a plan. You made a decision to invest in a company or trade in a company, whatever that might be. You've decided on it. Now let your decision play out. Don't ruin the decision by getting out too soon or trying to, you know, fix something. And it's almost like you give a man a strategy that is sure to make him a millionaire in 10 years, but in the hopes of getting there in one year, he's going to tweak it. He's going to optimize it. He's going to modify it. And 10 years later, he's still not there yet right? because he's not executing on a system. So I think that is the only way. Just stop looking at it and follow a plan. Just like a business follows a business plan, you should follow an investment plan or a trading plan. Yeah. I'm curious your take on this. I had a client recently, we'd done some tax planning. And when I actually got the information, they had like $115,000 capital gain. And I was like, what happened here? Nobody told me about this. The client was completely baffled. And I explained, I said, look, you had this stock that was worth 20,000 that's now worth 135,000 and your broker just sold it. And they called the broker and the broker's like, my rule is if there's more than 20% in one stock, it must be sold. And we were like, well, that's cool, but you didn't give us a heads up and there's a tax impact. So I'm curious, like when you see something appreciate that much, is there a point where you say you must cash out? Yeah, I think that's going to be individual for everybody. It depends on your time frame, right? If you have a 10-year time horizon on investment, then you have no business selling it in year one. But at the same time, though, what we've seen in the last few years is that things are getting ahead of themselves. And it's almost better to take profits at some times. For example, if you're into speculative stocks like Zoom, Roku, or all those big tech stocks that we all saw in 2018, 2019, were worth maybe $20 a share, going up to four, five hundred. Yeah, at that point, it's probably safe to say, let's lock it in, right? But if yeah. you're holding a big cap stock, let's say Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, I don't think there's any reason to sell those stocks. Or even Disney, for example, those are stocks that are core holdings that you want to try to hold on and ride the longer term wave. But if you're in something speculative, which you don't know if it has a future or not, maybe a Roku, maybe a Zoom, maybe Kathy Wood Arc ETF, when you see those things go up four or 500%, it's always get to take your original capital plus the tax. But a lot of people don't account for the tax. They think I'm yeah, selling right. it, it's my profit. It's not, it's not your profit. So account for the tax, take your original investment out and then just play with the house's money is a strategy that we usually like to do once we get our initial capital back. Yeah, absolutely. People do not factor in the tax. And for me, that's really key because I do taxes. So I've got to anticipate that. Or people don't understand wash sales and they're like, hey, I have a big loss. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> the wash sale has negated that. Look, I know sometimes you buy a stock and it just tanks. You didn't intend it. But a lot of times we hear about, for tax planning, we call the losses, right? We're like, great, we have lots of losses to offset the gains. And clients will come into me and they're like, oh my God, this is so great. I lost $100,000. We get to write it off. My mindset is you lost $100,000, so I wouldn't be so excited. It's great that we can take advantage of the loss, but at the end of the day, we're still dealing with the damage that was done versus I'd like to just keep paying taxes and have lots and lots of gains. What's your thought on that? I think my only duty is to do my thing to the best of my ability, whether being trading or investing. Surely the goal is not to lose money. Now, if you lose it, you can definitely offset it, but it's not the goal. The goal is to do well, to do the right thing and to let the experts handle it. So I don't get myself involved one bit when it comes to taxes or accounting or any of that. I know there's people who are better at that, smarter than me. And did I mention I was not great at math? <laughs> so I try not to handle it. I let the experts handle it. So I always advise people get the best account you can get. 
And if he's a good accountant, they're going to save you a lot more money than you're going to pay them. Right. So it's always advisable to get somebody on your side who's an expert at doing that so you can do what you're good at and let them do what they're good at. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you this. We hear about overnight successes and in a way you started having success at an early age. So sort of an overnight success. But there's usually more to it than that. And it's not just that one day you're a super success. Can you talk about some of the challenges you had early on when you first starting out, when you moved to London, like whole new world? Yeah, I think the challenge actually was when I got into trading, because the reason I got into it, like in London, part of our university system there, you had to do a one year of internship before you can even graduate. So there was a time where a lot of my friends were applying for different internships, getting great jobs also getting post-graduation offers already while they're in college, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And I applied every single where, from the best companies to all the way to the startups. And I didn't get a call back, wasn't able to find an internship, wasn't able to find a job. So that was one of the things when I got into trading and you would go out at a party, you're meeting your friends and they're looking at you funny. Oh, how's that trading thing going, right? And they expect you to fail because they think it's all gambling. They're like, how's that thing going? And initially I didn't make any money. So it was kind of uncomfortable answering that question. I was like, yeah, it's, it's all right. It's, it's going. It's going. <laughs> and you would kind of move it off. And those were some of the things that you have to battle. But I think that also built me into a stronger character because I can handle people saying no or expecting me to fail. And I could still push through that knowing that, okay, I've tested my strategy. I know it's going to work. So I think that was number one. Number two is in the first year of my trading, I lost half of my money pretty quickly. Ow. Like I got into it. I bought some stock. No idea what I was doing. I thought I can follow this person's newsletter and just double my money. And clearly that's not how it works. And so I lost half of it pretty quickly. And then I had to build back the other half of the capital so that he could even afford to trade. And that was one of the struggles where there was many days where I thought about quitting, eventually ended up joining a prop firm, trading for them. But that was also a struggle because the prop firm had a bunch of different levels that you had to cross through. And at level one, they start you on a simulator account. At level two, that you get 50000 to trade with until level 10, where you get $10 million of their money to trade with in exchange for 30% of the profits that they used to take. Wow. Now, I did that, and that was a point where I crossed from level one to level four in the firm pretty quickly. I was trading a million dollars of the capital, and I just kind of plateaued there. I wasn't making a whole lot of money. It was like maybe $2,000 or so here and there a week. And I was like, is that it? Like, is that my plateau? Is that my potential? Should I quit? Should I move on? All those little thoughts that come into your head. But that's when you have to tell yourself, okay, it's about the long term, right? Not about what a success I'm getting this month, but am I getting better? As long as I'm getting better, it's going to get better. And that's the mindset that I had always. How did you have the confidence or the trust or the mindset to keep saying long run, long run? Because a lot of people are like, fire, fire. <laughs> and they're all panicking running out the door. So what was it that helped you stay grounded, it feels like, to be able to say, wait a minute, today is not the only day. Yeah, I think my business partner was a big element to that. My business partner, he's actually the person who taught me how to trade. Much older than gentleman than I am, has three kids, family. And I was one of his original students that took me under his wing and he really mentored me. And we used to go over our losses and he didn't care about all my winning trades. He's like, I don't want to hear any of that. Let's go over your losing trades. What did you do wrong? What can you do better? So when I looked at that and I looked at his results and I'm like, hey, he's already doing the exact same strategy and succeeding. So it's clearly not the strategy. Right. It's clearly my execution or somewhere I'm falling short. And usually that's with your own psychology. Like you have a target, but you get out too soon because you think it's a great gain. Or if it's a losing position, rather than getting out for a quick loss, you keep holding because it'll come back up. I thought to myself, if I just eliminate those psychological issues of doubling down, averaging down, holding the losers, and then getting out of my winners quick, if I just solve that, 
then statistically, I looked at my spreadsheet, I could be profitable if I just didn't have those disastrous losses. So then I said, okay, I know this, it's a fixable thing. Other people are getting the results. My mentor is getting it. Other students are getting the results. Then it's clearly on me. And that's how I trained myself to just look at, okay, what do I need to fix? What do I need to improve upon? Rather than, oh, this is all just a gamble or anything like that. Love it. Curiosity. Curiosity. Emma, we're going to take a quick moment to test your nerve. Test Your Nerve is brought to you by themoneynerve.com. To the listeners, if you want to test your nerve and uncover the dirty truth about your finances, visit testyournerve.com for our free quiz. All right, here we go, down and dirty. Are you at the financial level that you envisioned yourself 10 years ago? Mm, Yes, but no. (laughs) The big answer. Meaning, yes, 10 years ago, I thought I'd be here. But now looking back, I'm like, I should be further. (laughs) (laughs) More, more, more. What was the last impulsive purchase you made and was it worth it? Ooh, uh, a set of golf clubs, uh, you know, these ones. And I ended up buying two of them. I don't know why. I bought this one. I'm like, oh, that one looks better. So now I got two set of golf clubs. (laughs) (laughs) Was it worth it? (laughs) Oh, totally. Yeah, no doubt. I love it. (laughs) How do you discuss money or how do you approach discussing money with family and friends? I think I discuss it just like anything. It's a resource. It's a tool on bettering your life. And you could use it for good. You could use it for evil, whatever you want. So it brings out the best of your personality. And I grew up in a business family, so talking about money comes very easy to us. And we've grown up talking about money and not feeling uncomfortable about it, whether good or bad. That's great. It was always in the open. Yeah. It was always visible. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to choose between your values and financial gain? Yes, I have been. This is a few years ago when I started, when we were just starting coaching people with live traders, and then we hired fold sales team. And I was listening to recordings. I'm like, that's not how we want to talk to people. And you're trying to close a sale, but that's just not in alignment with my values. So we ended up scrapping all of that and just running it, me, my business partner and our assistant all together. I'm like, I don't want to bake it into a call center and all that stuff. It gets into a different world, doesn't align with my values. Yeah. And I do think that's important for success long term is to check in with our values and then stay in integrity with that. Yeah. I write it every day. I have a little post-it note of my values. If I top my values, I keep it all here. And every time I make a decision, I look at it to see if it aligns with my values or moves me away from it. That's awesome. That's very intentional and very conscious. And that's what we love here at The Money Nerve and Money You Should Ask. So, all right. One last question. Assuming that you do, how do you separate your self-worth from your net worth? Originally, I didn't. Growing up, my self-worth was tied to my net worth, as I mentioned early on. Growing up, you always want to prove other people wrong. You have that element in you. As you grow up, you kind of lose it, and it's about doing it for yourself and for the betterment of yourself and the people around you. But growing up, definitely, I had my self-worth tied to my net worth. Not anymore. Now I only tie my self-worth to, am I adding value to the world? Am I adding value to other people's lives? And am I doing something that aligns with my value? As long as I do that, that's all I judge myself based upon anymore. That's awesome. All right, well, we're going to jump back into the conversation. I want to go back to your childhood. You grew up in India. And for people that have not been to India, I've spent some time there. I love India. I've spent a lot of time in Nepal. There's a caste system and it's still there today. Now, your last name happens to be Lion. I've also did a little research and a lot of people started using that last name to sort of be a non-identifier as to which caste people were from. And it turns out the British sort of actually, maybe depending on how you want to look at it, made it worse, right? Make it more rigid. Growing up, were you aware of your caste? Did it play a role in how you looked at things? To me, I think I was fortunate to be born in a big city, Delhi, uh, the capital of India. 
And it's a pretty progressive city where things are still moving in the right direction. And, you know, as growing up, I'd never had those conversations. My family has was very well-traveled and they've been around. My father's lived in different countries. So from our perspective, that was never a conversation that we had at our household about caste or any of those things. However, it's still very prevalent in other parts of India. So if you leave the big cities, the hub, for example, the equivalent of New York and California, if you take those out, the world is a bit different other parts of America. And same thing with India. If you leave out the big cities like Mumbai and Delhi, then it's still a prevalent system. But luckily, I, was, I think I was fortunate enough to have parents that were well-traveled, very progressive, and they didn't really care about the caste system. Although I would say religion is still a big thing. People prefer to marry within their religion. And that's something that my family still had early on, but not at the moment. I think now they've kind of moved on. They've accepted that things need to move on. So yeah, don't face much of that anymore. Yeah. Another part of my thinking. The other thing that I noticed, especially about Delhi, there is a lot of people. (laughs) And I was imagining that if I'm trying to be seen, if I'm trying to rise above the rest, there's a lot of people I got to rise above. Because there's just a lot of people. And for me, initially, it was a little daunting because I was like, wow. But if you grow up in that environment, you just have to learn to thrive, I would imagine. But how do you rise to the top with so many smart minds, with so many different people and voices and perspectives? For me, it's now it's like since I grew up in a big city like that with a lot of people around, I actually feel weird when I go to a smaller town and it's kind of quieter. So when my friends were like, oh, why are you in New York? I'm like, because that's what I'm used to. I'm used to people around everywhere. I'm you know, used to the noises in the street and going all of that. And I think that's why I just chose New York, because even when I went to other parts of America before deciding where to move, it's like, this feels too quiet. It's like not a lot of people there. But I think the way to thrive in that environment is to realize the people are there for a reason. That's where the opportunities exist. So having that mindset, rather than thinking about there's so many people, how am I going to stand out? Well, the people are there for a reason. They're not there in a smaller town for a reason. There's not a lot of opportunity. So that means there's something here. So you need to find your place in this big city. And a big city equals a big market. Big market equals more things for you to find out what you're good at and to thrive and also to build more connections. So it's all about how you look at it. I look at all those people as my network, right? Right. They're all my network. They're not my competition. And I think people at the top, they're not competing. People at the top are collaborating. And that's the focus people need to have is collaborating with other people seeing how they can add value to you, how you can add value to them. And you all lift each other together rather than thinking about a cutthroat competition. I just never thought about it that way. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to lighten the mood a little bit. Like, I want to know for successful traders, is there some kind of ritual or habit that you have or do like light a candle or take three deep breaths or dance around the room? Like, what are some of the things you might do? Are any of those things? hundred percent. Like the one of the things that I always talk about is having a morning routine, which is the same every day. And I'm not talking about your routine where you wake up, you brush your teeth, none of that. When you come to your desk, you should be doing the same things every day. So I'll sit on my desk at the same time every single day. At the same time, I'll open up the exact windows or the exact tabs I want to open in the exact same way every single day. And then I get up, I get my coffee exactly at the same time every day. Then I post my watch list of stocks that I'm looking at with my community and my members exact same time every single day. And then I'll do a little morning routine, like an anchor in NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. There's a thing known as anchoring. So we'll have an anchor. It's going to be different for everybody. So I always come in, I snap my fingers, I clap my hands, and I'll say, all right, let's do this exact same time every single day before I hop on the live stream. 
And that's a routine that I've built. And I think every successful person has a routine. If you go look at golf videos from Tiger Wood, watch all of his swings. He'll come in, he'll put his feet like that, put the golf club, he'll waggle it like two times, and then he'll look over to the left and then he'll take a shot every single time. So every sports person has the same routine. Same goes for trading because trading is a sport. We're competing against other traders. So you need to do the same thing every day. Put yourself in the right state of mind. And I think those are all practices that I always tell people to do the same thing, same time, every single day. That's awesome. How did you discover NLP? I actually discovered it growing up. I was like probably the weirdest kid you could find. I was maybe <laughs> 17 or you know, some, 16, something like that. And I was just online all the time. I would like an introvert play on Xbox all day long. So while being on a computer, I don't know how it came across. I just got into it and I felt really, really you know, engrossed in it. I finished Richard Bandler's book way back when I was like 18 years old. Wow. Went through the whole thing and I started creating anchors for myself because I wasn't very confident growing up. So I was like, okay, how can I be more confident in social situations? How can I do all those things? So I started working on myself and I saw, wow, it actually works. Then I started applying it to my business, my trading and all other ventures. Love it. Love it. If you don't know about NLP, I would highly recommend it because we all have a mindset and it can be reprogrammed. NLP is a great way to do that. So I love that. Tell us a little bit about your book. You've got Prepping for Success. What do you want readers to take from it? Yeah, definitely. So I think Prepping for Success is a book that I wrote for myself originally. It was meant as notes to myself on things that I need to do in my own life to achieve the level of success that I wanted. So it was basically just a rough draft of notes I used to write down because I spent a lot of money on personal development, right? Hundreds of thousands of dollars on hiring coaches, mentors, going to seminars, going to retreats, spiritual retreats, and all those sorts of things. But I realized that not everybody has the level of time and money to devote that I did into my personal development. So I gathered everything that I learned in my journey, put it in this book, Prepping for Success, 10 Keys for Making It in Life. So I put that in there as a way to help other people so that they don't have to go through the same struggles that I went through. And I wrote a book that I wish somebody gave me 10 years ago would have made life a lot easier. So some of my friends read the manuscript on my desk. They're like, you need to turn it into a book. I'm like, but it's not even my first language. I don't even know if I could turn it into a book. There's all sorts of errors in there. They're like, hire an editor. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And then I put the book out there and people are loving it. They're like, man, this is somebody broke it down very easily with not many big words and breaking it down. And every chapter ends with, here's five things you need to do before you move on to the next chapter. Because I don't want it to be like hundreds of books that you've read and you never do anything with. That's what a lot of people do. Move on from book to book and then they brag about reading five books this week. I'm like, but what did you do? You didn't do anything. You didn't apply any of that. Right. And I think that's the whole book is about is taking action. Well, I love that you use simple words and make it not so much that you can't digest it. Because as they always say, keep it simple, stupid. That's usually being told to me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think for people to be able to absorb it, it's already a topic. Money or just life can be overwhelming. And so when we can get it down to manageable, bite-sized information, it's a lot more actionable than esoteric and thousands of pages. And we just get lost. Yeah, I call that fluff, right? When people have tons of different stories, analogies in the book, but I'm like, it's just... Same thing said in a different way. So I wrote it more like Cliff Notes version. Hey, here's what you need to do. Here's how I applied it in my life. Before you move on, this is what you need to do. So one of the biggest things they talk about in the book is integrity. Doing what you said you're going to do and then doing it when you said you're going to do it. Like just think about how much the quality of your life would be so much better if you did every single thing you said you're going to do. And you did it when you said you're going to do it. Not pushing it off, not procrastinating, taking action, executing on it. 
Don't be the person who's like reading hundreds of books, watching thousands of videos on YouTube, one podcast to another. But then you're like, but did I apply? Did I apply it? That's the biggest thing. Yeah, I think that's so important. I really appreciate that because a lot of people will say what they're going to do, but good intentions don't count the same as actually doing the deed. I'd rather you not tell me you're going to do it than tell me you're going to do it and disappoint. Yeah, totally relate to that. Because it's like your no results does not equal a good excuse, right? Like that's the whole thing. It's like results are results. You don't have to explain results. Right. So results just are. If you have to explain it, then that means you didn't do it. Because explanation only is needed for things that you didn't end up doing. If you did it, the results would show for itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious. I mean, I have a sense why, but I just want to name it. Like besides your friend saying this should be a book, why do you want to help other people? Because of myself, like I went through a lot growing up. I was pretty confused and I kind of had to bring myself up after a certain time. I didn't have a lot of friends. My family wasn't really around in the later part. So I had to basically develop myself. And I said, okay, there's probably other people going through way worse than I am. Like there's people going through actual struggles and mine wasn't even that hard, but it felt really hard. So I'm like, if I felt that way, other people probably who have it worse feel a lot worse. So if I can help in any way, then, well, that's the value. Because, you know, in trading, Apart from if I'm teaching or coaching people and helping them make money, it's trading. There's not a lot of, I guess, value add into the world. So for me, it's a way of saying, okay, I can help people. They can learn how to take control of their finances. Then, well, that's going to help them. And that's my duty to the world. Same thing with this book. It's all about mindset and psychology because I can give you the best trading strategies in the world. But if you don't have your right mindset, you're not going to be able to apply it. You're not going to be able to do it. And same applies for business or anything else in life. You need to have the right mindset. And if I could do that for other people through my book, then that makes my day. That's awesome. And I think it goes back to what you were saying. When we help others, we all rise together. And so if we're using our integrity, if we're helping other people, it's going to come back to us tenfold, I believe. 100%. I'm a better investor and trader now because I'm coaching and trading other people because they keep me accountable too. Right. I live stream every single day of my investing. Win or lose my accounts live stream. People can see what's happening in my brokerage account in real time. So I have to be accountable to them. I can't do anything stupid or mess up because they're going to call me out on it. It's thousands of people watching me do the thing live. So it actually makes me more calm, makes me more reasonable, performing under pressure. And I think it makes me a better human being. Yeah, absolutely. And even though I don't always love being held accountable, I know that I want to be held accountable ultimately, even if it's uncomfortable in moments. So I love that you're doing that. Emma, we're going to switch to the M&M moment, our sweet spot, money and motivation. I'm wondering if you could give the listeners a practical tip or a piece of wealth wisdom, something that's worked for you that people could take out and apply. Yeah, I think the basic finance one-on-one is you need to have a system where you're investing your money, no matter how much you're making. Even if you think you don't have enough saved up, you have $10 that you can spare a month, whatever that might be. I think everybody needs to have a system where they have, let's say, an income coming in, but now a percentage of that income automatically needs to go somewhere where you're not going to touch it. Because if it's sitting in your bank account, we all know obviously it's losing money, value over time, but not even that. More than the value, what happens is when money is just sitting in your account, it'll find ways to leave your account. You'll develop an emergency. There's going to be a medical situation. There's going to be something. You're going to find an expense that'll come out of nowhere. If money's sitting in a bank account, it finds ways to go. So you need to have a system whereby it's automatically invested into the stock market because it's proven over the course of our lifetime and my dad's lifetime and my granddad's lifetime to be the safest and the best investment long term, not short term. You can have those ups and downs in the short run. But in the long run, stock market has always been higher now than it was 10 years ago, every single time. 
So if you just keep that in mind and take whatever you can afford, 10% of your income, 5%, and you can always work it up, work it, automatically invest it. And trust me, in the long run, you're going to be happy. Your kids are going to be happy. And it's actually boggles my mind speaking to a lot of people that don't do that. They're in their 40s, 50s. And I'm like, you've never invested? Imagine if you did that 20 years ago, even if it was $20 a day or a week or a month, you would have still got there. And people spend $10, $15 a day on random stuff that they don't even notice. So if they did that at the end of the month, over the course of 10 years, you would have a lot of money saved up for your retirement, for your future. So that's one piece of advice that I would advise, not advice, it's not financial advice, but definitely look into that. Yeah, I agree. Systems and consistency will move you along and then stay in present to see if you need to adjust those, just like you were talking about with your business mentor who you're reviewing the losses, not just the wins, because you're looking to, how do we course correct or where do I pivot next time? And that curiosity. Well, Anwal, this has been such a great conversation. And for me, the biggest take out of this is that really your focus on mindset and psychology, because that's what Money You Should Ask is all about, right? It's mindset. You can have the greatest information, but if you freeze with that information or you don't act with that information, it doesn't mean anything. And what we believe So the thing that I also was aware of is it feels like you know who you are and you're not embarrassed about that, you know, naming, okay, I I struggled when I was a kid or I wasn't the most popular or I was a little weird or, but going ahead, right. And still saying, okay, let me learn how to anchor. Let me learn about this. Let me be curious and finding the positivity and, oh, there's a lot of people here. Great. There's a lot of people that are looking for the same thing I'm looking for. Let's all help each other out versus looking for the, oh my God, this is going to be an uphill battle. Right. And so always looking, it feels like, for that positive perspective on things and just the intentionality, because I think people don't realize when we get conscious about our choices and we get very intentional, looking at your five values every day before you make a decision, those kinds of things really move the mark substantially, I believe. And I love that you're doing all this stuff at an early age. You still got a long life ahead of you and you're out there implementing these things and trying to make the world a better place. You've written a book to help people get there a little quicker than you did. And so I just really appreciate you coming in and sharing a little bit of your personal life and just some of the things that you've learned along the way. So thank you. No, thank you. And yeah, it was all great chatting with you as well. And I think what you were just saying about the uphill battle, I just want people to realize that it's always going to be uphill. If you're doing something meaningful, it's always going to be uphill, but that's when you know you're on the right track. Yeah. Because if you're feeling comfortable, guess what? You're in your comfort zone. So the growth only happens outside of that. So a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of resistance is a good thing. Just keep pushing through it and you're going to get there. Yeah, I think that's so important, getting out of your comfort zone. We get comfortable and then there's no movement because we're comfortable. Where can people find you online? Where can they find your social media? Where can they find your book? The best way to find me would be Twitter or Instagram. My username on both of those is Delta90, D-E-L-T-A-N-I-N-E-T-Y. I I had it a long time ago when the social media first came out. So I kept the username and then I didn't want to change it because that's what everybody knows me by now. But Delta90 on Instagram and Twitter. More information about the book can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Walmart, preppingforsuccess.com. And then if you're interested in more about trading, then visit livetraders.com and I'll be happy to help you out if that's something you choose to get into. Well, thank you so much. This has just been an awesome interview. And yeah, I really appreciate your nuggets of wisdom. So thank you so much. Great chatting with you as well. Thanks for having me. Hey there, Money Master. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn some valuable insights around your relationship with money? 
Our guests shared some of their financial epiphanies. You might have experienced one too. Don't just sit there with that aha moment. Share it with us and the world by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Or leave a comment on one of our socials, at Money You Should Ask. Let's spread the word and help others explore their financial health too. But that's not all. Do you want to live in abundance and build wealth that can sustain you and your family for generations to come? It only takes one thing. The willingness to change the way you think about your money. It's time to test your money nerve and discover what's been holding you back from financial freedom. Take the free quiz now at themoneynerve.com and begin your journey towards a prosperous future.